in many, perhaps most areas of life in our society, people tend to think that bigger is better. So if you have to choose which side to be on, we tend to choose the one that is larger, the one that seems to have the kind of evident advantage. That's the side that we would think is the better chance of winning, of lasting. It's the side that we should choose. So, so often we lean towards perhaps the, the larger company, the bigger bank, the larger country, the larger army. Choose that side that seems to be the safe and many would think that, therefore, perhaps that's how God works, that God must also work through the bigger, the stronger. God must choose the one who seems to have the evident advantage. That must be how he works in the world. But is that so? Or could it be that the way that God works is so very different, that this is one of the many ways that God's ways are different from our ways? So we're going to see in our passage this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Today we're in 1 Samuel, uh, starting in chapter 14. You can find it in the Bibles near you on page 235. Page 235. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the passage in front of you. So we work our way from chapter 14, verses 1 through 23. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we'll be in chapter 14. The smaller numbers of the verse numbers, we'll mention those throughout our time together. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room down here, there's a, a stack of Bibles. There's a sign that says free Bibles. So following the service, please stop by. Just grab one of those Bibles and take it with you this morning as our gift to you. So today we're continuing our series in 1 Samuel that we're calling In Search of a King. See in 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. He did not tell his father, Saul, who's staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. People who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. But in the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, the name of the other, Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. And John said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. The Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. 
Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, as it were a half a furrow's length in the acre of land. There was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. When they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. The ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. And while Saul was ta- talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with him into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Bethaven. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Embrace bold, faith-fueled living because our God faithfully saves. Embrace bold, faith-fueled living because our God faithfully saves. And we'll look at our passage in three different scenes. First, we see a plan developed. Second, action taken. And third, salvation provided. So plan developed, action taken, salvation provided. So first we see a plan developed in verses 1 through 7. We were introduced last week in our passage to Jonathan, who is the oldest of King Saul's sons. And we see in our text this morning that there was a standoff between the Philistine army and the Israelites. Saul had attacked the Philistines, but there had been a great retaliation. And the Philistines now far outnumbered the Israelites. Saul had about 600 men with him, but we saw last week they lacked even the most basic weapons. So they're outnumbered and they're cornered. And in every way, the Philistines have every advantage there could be. Yet one day, Jonathan told his armor bearer, this would be his his trained assistant, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. We see that Jonathan didn't tell his father Saul that he was going to do do this. Then we see a brief description of what Saul himself was doing. We're told he was on the outskirts of Gibeah, and clearly the king was in no way mounting an attack. He was not making plans to somehow attack the Philistines. He's he's simply trying to, to sort of stay and preserve his own life. He does have a priest with him that at first seems that perhaps this is a good sign based on, on Saul's recent actions. There's, there's doubt about his character and certainly about his willingness to follow the word of God. So here he has a priest with him. So, so perhaps that's a good thing. And yet we're reminded by this uh, list of the family line that this priest is from the fallen line of Eli, who we've seen previously in this book. So he does have a priest. That is true. But, but both 
King Saul, who's been told by Samuel that his, his kingdom will be taken from him, and the priest who's with him, both of them are on a downward spiral. We're given this sort of rather in-depth description of the past that they're at, about the names of both of these crags that are on both sides. The, the fact that they're named points to the fact that these are very substantial, very large areas. Jonathan expands in his desire, verse 6. Look down to verse 6. So he tells his armor bearer a little bit more. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So we see Jonathan's motivation for this plan that he's developing. Jonathan's motivation is driven by his faith in his God. As he refers to these Philistines as the uncircumcised. By this, he's making clear that they, they are not a part of God's covenant people. In fact, they are, they are complete enemies of it. They're, they're worshipers of other gods. They are now dominating, mocking God's people. And so for Jonathan, this is a battle of faith. John wants, Jonathan wants to, to preserve the name of his God. So that's what stirs Jonathan to action. Not concerned for his own name, not his own fame, but the name of the covenant God of Israel. As we look more closely at Jonathan, what he said, we, we see that part of his statement is confident. Look, he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So first he says, nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving, and he's able to do it however he likes. He can do it with many people. He can do it with few people. Either way, the Lord is able to save. Nothing can stop him. And in light of that confidence statement, Jonathan says this, it may be that he will work for us. Now, Jonathan doesn't say that with certainty. But he simply says, it's possible. It's possible that God may work through us. Now, Jonathan is well acquainted with his God's past saving acts. How God has again and again delivered his people, saved his people. How his people had been enslaved in Egypt with, with no means of delivering themselves. And God saved them by his hand so that the Israelites didn't even have to fight. God brought them out. And across the generations, how God has sustained them most recently in the, the time of the judges that just precedes this. How again and again, God's people had rebelled and, and they had had opposers over the top of them. And yet God raised up a judge and through a, a small judge through strange circumstances, God again and again delivered and saved. And even in this book, back in chapter 7, we saw how the Lord had delivered his people. And again, they didn't even fight. He thundered from heaven and he delivered them. So this is what the Lord had done. In fact, this is who the Lord is. He is a saving God. Now, did Jonathan have any guarantee of success? No. And he knows that. That's why he says, it may be. Or perhaps. He doesn't say, it will certainly be. He doesn't say, the Lord saves, so therefore it is certain that you and I will go and win. He's simply saying something like, you know what? God might use us. We're going to go and fight and 
God might help us win. But he's not sure of it. Now, there is some calculation that could lead Jonathan to think that this would be the sort of circumstance where God might deliver. Because we've seen the very motivation for Jonathan is because of the sake of God's name. These who, who reject God, who are opposed to God, who are oppressing God's people, who are mocking God. That's why he's going. And it does seem across history that of all modes of deliverance, God prefers to deliver by few. He prefers to deliver in a way where only God can get the credit. And this would qualify. Jonathan and his armor, just the two of them, would certainly by any measure qualify as a few. So, so the calculation for Jonathan is, I'm not sure. This does seem like an instance where God might deliver. We want to be sure to notice the armor bearer's response. Look what the armor bearer says, verse 7. He says to Jonathan, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So the armor bearer says, do it. Whatever you have in mind, do it. I'm with you. Today, as Christians, we can live with the same sort of confidence that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And just as Jonathan had evidence in the preceding generations, we too have evidence, in fact, much more evidence than Jonathan had. For since Jonathan, God has continued to save, sometimes by many, but more often by few. And between Jonathan and us, we also have the, the pinnacle of God's great saving work. For Jesus Christ, God the Son, came into this world. And he lived in this world living a perfect, sinless life always walking in righteousness and uprightness. He lived a, a perfect life, and then he died a sacrificial death. There he put to death, dying in order that he might provide through that, through his death and resurrection, salvation as a free gift to any and all who would admit they need a savior, who would admit they, they don't have the means to save themselves, that they could never be good enough, they could never be religious enough. They, there's no means of saving themselves. Christ died to provide that as a gift to all who would say, I need a savior. And friends, this is what was in Christ's heart. Out of God's great love, he desired to come and go to the cross, that he might save us from our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And that salvation, God would save through the smallest of numbers. Just one. Only through Christ. He had no army. He didn't even have an armor bearer. But it was sufficient, more than sufficient, as God the Son went to the cross to rescue sinners like us. And friend, if you don't think of yourself as a Christian today, we're glad that you would join us today. And what I just described is the very center of Christianity. It's the good news, not that we could ever be good enough. It's the good news, not that we earn God's favor by attending services like this enough times that God might love us, but it is the good news that a Savior came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. There's a gracious God who created us, and out of his great love provided a way for us to be reconciled to him. Forgiven of all our sins, transformed, adopted into God's own family, brought into life eternal. 
Friend, if this is new to you, we'd love for you to feel comfortable here in the weeks to come to explore more of who Jesus is. Maybe you'd like to know more today. I'll be at the door on your way out. I would be happy to tell you more. You can also note that on the card, and we can arrange a time to talk if you're interested. Or, or friend, if you came with a, a friend or a family member and they're a Christian, I'm certain they would love to tell you more today. For those of us who are Christians, we, we have this Savior who's provided this great salvation. And he continues this work of saving in this world today as people turn to him by faith. And this one who saved us, he will keep us. And he will bring us home so we will be with our God forever. So we too, like Jonathan, can say, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So we see a plan developed which led to to second to action taken. We see action taken in verses 8 through 15 where where Jonathan now outlines more of what they're going to do. He says, well, cross over to the Philistines. They're going to let themselves be seen, basically announce themselves. And he says, if the Philistines say to us, come up to us, meaning they're going to have to climb up this rocky crag, then we'll go up. And he says, then that will be the sign that we have them right where we want them. Now, I'm clearly not a part of special forces. I, I, I can't climb a rocky crag. I don't have a sword. But to me, this sounds like a bad plan. I mean, if I'm the armor bearer who said, I'm with you heart and soul, I might be saying, are you sure about this? We're basically going to wave our hand and say, hey, guys, here we are. And if they say, come up here, now we're going to climb up to them, to where they are, to their land, and then we're going to fight them. And that's going to be the sign that God has given them to us. Sounds like a disastrous plan. But that's what they did. We see verse 11. They show themselves to the Philistines. The Philistines mock them. They say, look, some of the Hebrews have come out of their holes. So so clearly they perceive that that all of God's people have been hiding. So look, a couple of them finally came out of their holes. And so he says, come on up here to us. So Jonathan says, we've got him right where we want him. They climb up. We see verse 13. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer after him. They kill about 20 men. We see verse 15 that there's panic in the camp, in the field among the people, that there's an earthquake, a great panic. So we see these truly unlikely odds. Jonathan and his armor bear, two against many. But God faithfully worked through these faith-driven actions. Jonathan had a bold plan to take a risk. But simply having a plan was not enough. It wouldn't have been enough for, for Jonathan just week by week to sit with his arm and say, you know what, someday we're gonna go over there, we're gonna climb that crag and we're gonna win the battle. We all have friends like that in different areas of life. You know, someday I'm gonna do this. Someday I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. I've said that a few times. It gets further and further every year. You know, someday I'm going to start a business. So I'm going to do this. And, and we sat with him. And, and the first time we heard him, we're like, that's a great plan. But after months and years, we can say, oh, I mean, this is a good friend, but he just talks a good game. He doesn't really do anything with it. Well, it's one thing for Jonathan to say, I have a plan. But eventually, he had to take action. And so it is for us. It's a, it's a good and wise thing for God's people to seek to be strategic, to be discerning. To have a plan, but eventually, we have to take action. We have to take a step. We have to do something. So we see this action that was taken, which led to third 
salvation provided. Salvation provided in verses 16 through 23. So we see that Saul and his men are over here, and and some of their watchmen notice there's something going on. The Philistines are in disarray, that they're beginning to disperse. And so the word reaches Saul, and Saul's like, well, well, somebody must have gone out from us. So they, they tally up who's missing from us, and it becomes clear that it's Jonathan and his armor bearer. Those are the only two that are gone, and yet there's this uproar happening among the Philistines. So Saul wants to know what he's supposed to do, so he has the priest bring the ark of God. It's a little unclear here if this is actually the ark or this is the ephod that's also referred to that that in some way functions like the ark to them. But either way, Saul is consulting with the priest, seeking to hear from God about what he's supposed to do. So he said to the priest, help me to know what I'm supposed to do. What what does God want me to do here? We see verse 19 that the uproar continues. It clearly looks like the Israelites are in position to win. So Saul tells the priest to stop. He's like, I'm tired of waiting. I wanted to hear from God. I don't have time to hear from God now. The battle is being won. So he says, withdraw your hand. Stop whatever you're doing. I don't want to hear from God now because it looks like we're winning. Now I will join the fight. Here again, we see Saul's weakness as a leader, as a king. He himself was basically hiding out. Then finally something happens. It looks like his side is going to win, and now he wants to, to jump in the fight, the fight that's already won. In fact, he wants to now be in the front of it and leading forward as the king. You see verse 21, that the uproar was so great that there were some of the Israelites who had gone over previously to the Philistine side. So functionally, they had been traitors. They had switched over to the Philistines, but now the uproar is so great that they switch back. It's like the the kid who's watching a game and he says, which team are you cheering for? And he says, I'm for the Red Sox. And the Yankees are winning by four. He says, no, I'm for the Yankees. And then whoever's winning, he's just sort of switching back and forth. That's what happens here. They've gone over to the Philistines, but now they come back. But not only that, we see verse 22, that so many of the Israelites were hiding in the hills. And they too heard the news. We're winning The Philistines are scattering, and so they too are emboldened to join the battle. And our text concludes, verse 23, so the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord again saved. He delivered his people. And notice, friends, it was not Jonathan who saved. It certainly wasn't Saul who had saved, but it was the Lord faithfully saving. And how did he save? By the few. By two, he saved. And friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to also embrace faith-fueled living. And there are some false ideas that some teach that we want to be alert to that are close to what I'm about to say, but are dangerously untrue. There's some that teach that there's a guarantee for all Christians at all times that we will triumph in all things. And they basically said that God must do it through us. He must do whatever you pray for him to do. He's committed, he must do that. But friends, notice that's not what Jonathan believed. He did believe God can save, 
Jonathan was not certain he would save in this instance. And across the scriptures, we do not see that we're told we have some guarantee in this life that our particular efforts will always succeed. Now, we can see why this teaching might be attractive. And people might want to believe it. That if someone taught, yes, if you just have enough faith, you will always prosper. You will always have success in this life. You will always win. You will always be healthy. You can see why we would want to believe that, except it's just very foreign to the entire Bible. We do know that our king and his kingdom will ultimately succeed. For we who are in Christ, he will bring us home with him. But until then, we're not guaranteed success, nor health, nor prosperity in this life. So we do engage then as humble, reliant people. And we engage with bold actions some that are seemingly small and some that are big. And I wonder, if you think about your own general mindset, does your mindset lean towards that of Jonathan here? When you think about what God is doing in the world, do you think it may be that God will do this? Perhaps God will do that. There's a chance that God would save in this instance and that's enough for me. Is your thought often, wouldn't it be amazing if God did this? Isn't it possible or even likely that God might save that person? Is that the bent of your heart? Or is your mindset typically more like, I don't think there's much of a chance of that. I I don't want to be naive. I mean, let's not be foolish. I mean, that, that seems like a risky adventure. I'm pretty sure God won't do that. I mean, God may work through some people, but I don't think he'll work through me. And sometimes I think in particular, as we get older, the longer we've been Christians, the more times we've experienced instances where there wasn't evident victory. We prayed and we waited and Things didn't go the way that we hoped. It becomes easier and easier to become more pessimistic, to lack hope and courage, to begin to assume the worst. We easily begin to fear taking risks. And we begin to live something like Saul, who is pulled back from the battle. He's hiding out. We we functionally live like the Philistines were mocking the Israelites. They were hiding in holes. And by faith, that's how we live as Christians, hiding in holes, refusing to take a risk. We're sort of just trying to get through this life until finally we will be with our king. And sometimes we find ourselves stagnating in our faith. This is the very reason for that because we're actually not engaged in the mission. We're so unwilling to take a a risk, so unwilling to take a step of faith, that our faith begins to grow cold. But friends, we we should see that there's no other way for the, the people of Jesus than to join in sometimes daring bold actions for his kingdom. 
We see it in Jonathan. Friend, if we read the New Testament, friend, read the book of Acts, we see God's people not knowing how it's all going to play out, but willing to be courageous, to take bold steps by faith, sometimes seeing success in this life, sometimes not. Many of them dying for the faith, and yet they say, we must do this. This is the very nature of our king. But where will we find the strength to take a bold step? Where might we find the courage to take a risk? The armor bearer had said to Jonathan, I am with you. And that's incredible support. But friend, the good news is we have someone even greater than that. For Jesus, our king, said something very similar. In the Great Commission, as he sends us out to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. So friend, whatever bold steps you might take, big or small, Jesus is with you. In fact, now, by the Holy Spirit, he's in you. The Spirit is in us, in every single Christian. So where do we find courage? It's not just simply sort of stirring it up within. It's not willpower that we have, but it's the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit who is much more interested in the expansion of the good news than we are ourselves. And the reality is every one of us have opportunities before us now and throughout this life. Now we don't have a guarantee of success, but we do have a God who's powerful enough to save So friends, we can consider and engage and take risks. We don't do it, we're not to do it from guilt. It's not that, oh, I guess I should go take some risks. Or it is, why wouldn't I wanna go take some risks? Our God is powerful, he's able to save. Why wouldn't I wanna join in doing that? What's the worst that can happen, we can say? One area that we could think of would be people in our lives who we desire to know the grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, family members, neighbors we have, people we really care about who don't yet know Christ. I have some of those in my family who I love deeply but who don't know Christ. It's easy over time to lose hope, to stop praying, to stop trying, to stop trying to pursue a conversation. So we're tempted to think, well, I could never be I don't think God can or would save that person or at the very least God won't do it through me. Friends, let's pray again. Pray for God to refresh our hope, our faith, our confidence in him. And then let's look for opportunities. An opportunity that you might have to have a conversation with this family member or friend who you love so much. Look to share for the first time or maybe to share again. Maybe extend an invitation if they, they might be interested in reading the Bible with you. They may be family member, friends in other parts of the globe. And so, so in addition to praying for you to have a conversation, praying that God would bring someone across their path who knows Jesus, who would love them as well. Friends, remember, our Lord saves. It may be that he will work through us in this. With the Christmas season approaching, we, we have a great opportunity. Probably the most strategic opportunity in our society currently, I think, is Christmas. Think So many people in our society celebrate Christmas in some way and would be open to some invitation from a Christian during this season. 
One of those opportunities will be the first Sunday evening of uh, December. We'll have a carol service on Sunday evening at 6. So we'll gather together and we'll sing many of the great carols of the faith. We'll have a, a brief message. And the fact is, many people in our city would love to sing Christmas carols with other people. The question is, where would they do that? Where would they even have the opportunity to do that? And so many of the carols, friends, have such great gospel clarity in the very words of the songs. So you might just think about with, with friends or family members, classmates, inviting them to join us as we sing these carols together. But then related to that would be Christmas Eve. So we'll have a Christmas Eve service at, at 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. Likewise, we'll, we'll sing, we'll, we'll hear God's word. And maybe you're traveling to be a family for Christmas. You might consider maybe you're from there and you know a church there or you're going to visit family is there a Christmas Eve service that you could find? And you can invite your family, your friends, and say, hey, I'd like to go to this service. What if we went together as a family? And if you're going to a place where you don't know a church, if you'll email me, we'll do our best to research some options that we could give to you, a place where you could, you could take your family or your friends, and they would hear the good news as a part of that. And be encouraged. Our Lord saves. It may be that he could work through a simple service like that. Jesus has told us to take the gospel to the nations, to the entire world. Well, how will that happen? When there are people groups, millions of people with almost no access to the gospel, how might that possibly happen? How would God take the good news to them? Will it be through some great worldwide media campaign? Will it be that if we just find the right sort of global, uh, you know, uh, celebrity, if they became a Christian, would that be God's means? Now, friends, typically the way that God will do it is through few. A few people who will never be a celebrity, who will move to another place and learn a language, and love a people, and sow seeds of the gospel in work that will often look completely without fruit. And through that, though, the good news will go forward. Slowly, the gospel will spread, and God will establish his church. When God has done it again and again, that's how he does it now. And so this morning, we're going to pray for one of our members who we're sending out today to go and serve in Japan, a place where there's great need, little access to the gospel. And so we're going to pray for Kimberly today, and she's going to go. We pray for others in our church, the king's core who also serve. On one level, it looks like a ridiculous strategy. Common people moving to another place. How would God change a people through that? And yet, that's what he's done again and again. But our Lord saves. It may be that he would work through this. Well, what about greater Boston? Statistically, still not that many Christians. How would the gospel reach Boston? Well, what does it look like? Can, can you really start new churches in greater Boston? A little group meeting on Beach Street in Cambridge. Me, meeting over in Coolidge Corner in Brookline. Meeting in Bedford. Meeting in Beacon. A, a group in the Polys gathering on Beach Street in Cambridge. I mean, can those churches even survive? Will they last? How could a little gathering of people in, in Belmont ever impact that community? We're not sure. But our Lord saves. It might be that through that, God would work through us. And for every one of us who face the question of like, do we really want to build a life in greater Boston? It's not easy to be a Christian here. The winds of society seem to blow so strong. So, so, so is it possible to be a faithful Christian here? Aren't there easier places? Is it possible to raise a, a faithful Christian family here? 
Why not go elsewhere? Friends, our Lord saves. Might he save with and through this as well? So we live in this world in light of, with confidence in our God who saves. And if we're going to persevere in this, we're going to need some people with us to say, you can do it. People like the armor bearer. It's really compelling how he said, do it. I'm with you heart and soul. And friends, who is it that does that for us now? Friends, it's to be the church, God's people. To to have some fellow members of the church when you're saying, you know what, I'm praying for my brother to know Christ. Your family part of the church would say, I'm with you in that. I'll pray with you for your brother. You see, I'm going to visit my family for Christmas. I'm thinking about inviting them to this carol service that I found. And you say, we're with you in that. We'll pray for you in that. And that's what the church is to be. People who are for one another, urging one another, carrying this burden together. So friend, who are you? Who can you encourage as they take risks? And as you think about taking risks, will you invite them? Invite others in this church to join you in that. We also saw that in the response to God's acts, the Israelites were emboldened to join the battle. It's really interesting. So many of them were hiding in the hills They see someone else is winning and they're like, you know what? I think I want to get in on the fight. I want to join because I see someone else's courage. That gave them courage. It's one of the gracious ways that God works through you as you take risks is your example may encourage others. Before we moved to to Boston to plant the church, um, some people approached us about moving to plant the church in Amherst, Mass. So Brandy and I prayed about it, gave serious consideration to it, but then finally decided, one, I don't think I'm a church planter. But then two, honestly, I don't think I had enough faith to take that risk. It just seemed too big and honestly just too hard to even conceptualize how that could work. But by God's providence, I told a buddy who I was going to seminary with, and he and his wife moved to Amherst. And so we started praying for them and getting their updates. And as we saw, and and their beginning was really hard. There there was no like dramatic growth. But you know what? By seeing their faith, it emboldened us to think, well, if they could do that, maybe they could use us. Maybe there's a place for us as we saw their faith. Because never discount how God may be working through you. As, As you take steps of faith, someone else says, I could try that too. I could share in that way too. I might go around the world to share the gospel with people who've never heard because they've seen someone else do it. Friends, those examples are valuable and emboldening. Friends, because of what Christ has done for us in this great salvation and because of the power of the spirit who dwells in us, friends, we have every reason to embrace bold faith-fueled living because our God faithfully has saved and does save. Let's embrace that together this week.